I'm Dr. Jess Cap, and this is Storybook Earth. Welcome to Storybook Earth, a podcast that fuses science and storytelling, two of my favorite things, to bring you vibrant tales of notable Earth features, phenomena, and places, and the geological processes that make them what they are. From the tiniest minerals in the oldest rocks on Earth, to the giant asteroid that killed the dinosaurs, from the strange and mysterious trenches of the ocean, to the romanticized top of Mount Everest, the stories in the chapters of Earth's long and beautiful history are all around us, just waiting to be told. Near the end of episode four, I talked about the role of iron in creating some of the most beautiful red rocks on planet Earth, such as the red sandstones of Sedona, Arizona. Thinking of those rocks brings me back to an experience I had while doing field work in the middle of Tibet. On a rare solo hike, I found myself in a canyon of orange-red sandstone, the walls of rock around me just waiting to share their secrets. I was more than 7,000 miles from home, alone in the middle of the highest plateau on the planet, surrounded by rocks that held tales of Tibet's geological history. My job was to decipher that history as best I could by making observations, mapping what I saw, and collecting samples for analysis back in the labs where I was a graduate student. At the end of the long day, I dropped my pack, heavy with fist-sized samples of the sandstone, and sat down on the uneven ground to remove my boots. They were the first pair of real hiking boots I had ever owned. They were brown leather, scraped and worn, real trekkers boots. The rocks under me were warm from the sun, and the only sound was the wind. My feet were sore and I rubbed at them with one hand while fishing around in my pack for a stray power bar with the other, happy to have a few moments to catch my breath. Looking at my legs, I guessed I was down more than 15 pounds. My shorts billowed around my thighs. Peeling open the foil wrapper, I caught sight of some motion out of the corner of my left eye. I turned my head, expecting to see one of my fellow graduate students emerging from a nearby canyon. The movement was faint and hard to decipher, nothing more than a slight alteration of a small area of ground, formless and strange. I went back to my snack until it happened again, and this time I saw it clearly, no question what it was. A wolf. A lone wolf sniffing intently at the ground not 30 yards away. I felt a twinge of fear, but I didn't move. I couldn't take my eyes off the wolf. The sun was beginning her descent toward the horizon, soon to be lost behind the peaks towering over me. I guessed I had covered at least 10 miles since being dropped off at the mouth of the canyon early that morning. I gulped some boiled river water from my Nalgene bottle, then held the cool plastic to my forehead. The weather was warm and I worked in shorts and a t-shirt. A fleece jacket balled up in the bottom of my pack in the unlikely event that I got stuck out overnight. My companions would appear soon from the mouths of their own canyons. Canyons cut deep and V-shaped into the gritty sandstones of this small mountain range. But for now it was just me and the wolf. A light breeze fluttered my greasy hair, wicking the sweat off my brow. I glanced at my boots in a heap near my feet, 
scraped up by weeks of scuttling over rock surfaces, and noticed small tears forming in my backpack, the result of rough rock corners catching the fabric as I loaded them in and out. I had been in Tibet now for more than a month. I put my eyes back on the wolf and wondered if it was male or female. Thick coat, sleek body, obviously one with the surroundings, as curious eyes moved carefully over the ground. I decided it was a she-wolf, wandering on her own, seeking out some much-needed solitude. I believed she wouldn't hurt me, that we were both a part of this place, adapted in our own ways to its unique conditions. I wanted to see what she would do, hoping she might come a little closer. I wanted to be able to hear her pant, smell her musky scent, see the wind skim over her furry back, sending ripples through her pelt like waves on an ocean. She felt kind of like a kindred spirit, a harbinger of grace. I knew, though, that if things went south with the wolf, I would need to be ready to move. She wasn't making any moves, and I was not sure if she could catch my scent from that distance. But she was wild, unpredictable, capable of killing me if she wanted to. That I was sure of. She padded a few more feet, her head held low in the crouched stance of a predator, and then suddenly stopped, watching me. I felt the muscles of my legs tense, ready to engage and lift me off the ground if necessary. I wondered why I'd taken off my boots. Slowly, I slipped my hand inside the front pocket of my pack and grabbed hold of my Swiss Army knife. A feeble weapon against a wild wolf, to be sure, but perhaps my only chance should she pounce. A bead of sweat trickled down my back as I opened the primary blade and set the knife firmly in my palm. The minutes ticked by, the sun reflecting off the red walls of the canyon behind the wolf, highlighting hints of blonde in her burnt umber fur. She went back to sniffing the ground, occasionally turning her face into the wind, catching scents in her flared nostrils. My eyes narrowed. Any second now she could run. Toward me? Away from me? Either was possible. Spoiler alert, she didn't kill me. Eventually, she lost interest and walked slowly off back up the canyon from whence she came. It was such an intense and beautiful experience. And now, whenever I see red beds, layers of red, sedimentary rocks, I think back on my wolf encounter with awe and reverence. It is just one of the ways that being a geologist has permeated my entire life and being, in ways I never could have imagined. Red rocks, like the ones in my wolf story, and those in Sedona, formed during a time in Earth's history when there was ample oxygen available to create what we call an oxidizing environment, one in which oxidizing reactions occurred, leading these rocks to essentially rust and turn that gorgeous orange-red color. Mostly, this has been since about two billion years ago, which is when oxygen had built up in Earth's atmosphere as a result of tiny, photosynthesizing ocean dwellers. But what was going on prior to two billion years ago? The Earth was so different back then, the environment would have felt completely strange to oxygen-breathing mammals like us and the wolves, who live, move, and breathe on land. 
Before two billion years ago, anything alive lived only in the oceans and did not rely on oxygen to survive. So believe it or not, life existed on this planet before oxygen. So life is not necessarily synonymous with the breathing of oxygen, but we associate life with oxygen and we take oxygen for granted. There is ample oxygen in our atmosphere today. About 21% of our atmosphere is composed of oxygen, but it wasn't always so. In fact, Earth has had three distinct atmospheric compositions throughout her history, and it is only the most recent atmosphere that is conducive to supporting oxygen breathers, such as us. So let's take a little tour through Earth's past atmospheres. The atmosphere, like Earth's oceans and rocks, is constantly changing. Gases are being added to it all the time, in particular, greenhouse gases created by human activities such as burning fossil fuels, but we'll talk about that in a later episode. Before there were humans making their mark on the atmosphere, it was changing in response to natural processes occurring as our planet cooled over time. But the first of Earth's atmospheres was primitive, a remnant of the solar nebula from which our planet originally came. It was a noxious combination of methane and ammonia, with a little water vapor thrown in, not a great place for life as we know it today. But this atmosphere persisted on Earth until about 3.8 billion years ago, so for almost a full billion years. Not much was happening to alter it, and it just hung around, tethered to Earth by its gravity, encasing it in a bubble of gases that would become an important part of supporting and protecting life. Remember that Earth was, at first, a molten ball, and it took time for the molten rock, or lava, to cool and begin to form a solid crust. As Earth cooled and outgassed, that is, released gases from the interior of the planet, the atmosphere was being modified. Carbon dioxide and nitrogen gas began to populate the atmosphere as they were expelled from erupting volcanoes and bubbling lavas. Ammonia and methane were swamped by nitrogen and carbon dioxide, but still, still, no oxygen. This second atmosphere, dominated by carbon dioxide and nitrogen, was around until about 2.4 billion years ago, which was a turning point in the history book of our atmosphere, when something important happened. The Great Oxygenation Event. All this oxygen came from photosynthesis, the process by which green plants, in this case, cyanobacteria in the shallow oceans, use sunlight to create their own nutrients from carbon dioxide and water. This process creates a byproduct, oxygen. It's one of the reasons we should all hug a tree, to thank them for the gift of oxygen. Photosynthesis began on Earth roughly 3.8 billion years ago, although there is really interesting evidence in some of the oldest rocks on the planet that it may have started even earlier. But needless to say, it is an ancient process. So photosynthesis began right around the time of transition between the earliest primitive atmosphere full of nasty ammonia and methane to that middle atmosphere filling up with carbon dioxide and nitrogen gas. Now notice there is a gap in time between when organisms began photosynthesizing, 
about 3.8 billion years ago, and the great oxygenation event about 2.4 billion years ago. So during that time, where was the oxygen going? Well, this is where our beautiful banded iron formations come in. Banded iron formations, as I mentioned last episode, are very old rocks with alternating bands of black and orangey red. They represent that time in Earth history when photosynthesis was going strong, but oxygen had not yet begun to build up in our atmosphere. This is that pre-2 billion years ago time. Algae-like organisms in the early oceans were photosynthesizing away, soaking up CO2 and pumping out oxygen. But where was that oxygen going if not into our atmosphere? Well, it was staying in the oceans, which were iron-rich and anoxic. So the oxygen being added to these shallow oceans by our friends, the photosynthesizers, couldn't escape to the atmosphere yet because instead it was being rapidly removed from the ocean water by reduced ferrous iron. That is, iron that's in the right chemical state to be able to bond with oxygen and become insoluble iron oxide. So iron was grabbing onto the oxygen, forming minerals such as magnetite, Fe3O4 or hematite, Fe2O3, and these then sank to the ocean floor because they're much denser than ocean water. Ocean water has a density of just over one gram per cubic centimeter. Magnetites is about 5.1 grams per cubic centimeter, and hematites is 5.3 grams per cubic centimeter. So down, down they went, where they settled and piled up. For more than a billion years, this process went on. Iron and oxygen hooking up with abandon in the oceans, creating magnetite and hematite, which then settled through the shallow ocean water and solidified into the dark bands that became the black layers of the banded iron formations. The more photosynthesis that was happening, the more iron oxides were forming and settling in the oceans. An important side note, the oxygen that we love so much not so great for organisms that had never encountered it before. So the very critters that were contributing the first oxygen to the Earth system couldn't process it and it poisoned them. So there was a balancing act going on between the production of oxygen by these photosynthetic life forms and their death in response to oxygen in their environment. It took about a billion years, but they did evolve into being able to survive well in an oxygen-rich environment, which eventually opened the door for mad amounts of photosynthesis. During periods of relatively little photosynthetic activity, either due to dieouts or seasonal variability, less oxygen was being produced in the shallow oceans. And then bands of silica-rich chert were forming and settling instead of magnetite and hematite. Now these are those alternating layers of orange rock that you may hear referred to as chalcedony. They make up those beautiful orange layers in the banded iron formations. And they're colored that way by tiny iron oxide particles in between the silica grains. This is much like the iron oxides of our Sedona red rocks which are primarily formed of grains of silica sand, but have tiny iron oxide particles in between those sand grains. 
Most banded iron formations were forming between about 2.5 and 2.8 billion years ago. The sweet spot, where the organisms producing the oxygen were able to live with it in their environment. And an explosion of photosynthetic life around this time allowed for rapid creation of banded iron formations. Now over time, this process depleted the supply of ferrous iron in the oceans, ultimately leading to the end of new banded iron formations being created. And that is when oxygen was free to migrate to the atmosphere, where it caused that great oxygenation event of 2.4 billion years ago. Wow, that's quite a story, with multiple chapters exemplified by changes in life and pretty red rocks. The banded iron formations are an old chapter of deep earth history, telling of a reduced earth environment 3.8 to 2.5 billion years ago, when life was very different from what we know on Earth today, and oxygen was a killer. And the red rocks of Sedona, and many other red rocks on Earth, record a more recent chapter, telling of an oxygenated atmosphere since about 2 billion years ago, a time in which life started to change, diversify, and evolve. Both are really great stories. Both changed the course of our planet's future. It's hard to ignore the spark of curiosity these fiery red rocks can inspire. And for me, they'll always be a pleasant reminder of the time that I spent in the middle of Tibet learning how to be a geologist. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, please consider subscribing, liking, writing a review, and sharing this with a friend or two. Thanks to our listeners and supporters. Special thanks to Michaela Moore for music, sound editing, and design, and to Pierce Ware for the artwork. The Geology Podcast Network is sponsored by Traveling Geologist. <laughs>